Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, definitely exciting guest today. I mean, he's done it multiple, multiple times. I mean, we're going to be learning quite a bit, building, scaling, financing, exiting, so everything in between. So I guess without further ado, Keith Richman, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about us. So born in Chicago and raised in LA. So tell us about life growing up. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> You know, life in Chicago was was great. I left when I was seven uh, because my parents quickly realized it was cold in winter, uh, and we moved out to L.A. Which, you know, you gr- growing up in L.A. I think comes in and of itself with a lot of connotations. You know, I found it to be a, a wonderful way to learn about uh, a broad range of of industries and to meet a, a, a very diverse group of people from a professional basis. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to go to a private high school here called Harvard High School, now called Harvard Westlake, um, which I, you know, gave a wonderful groundwork um, in terms of education and, uh, you know, ability to sort of think critically, which I think has served me very well. And I guess uh, growing up, I mean, any anyone in your family was, was building businesses or an entrepreneur as well, or how did you get this crazy drive to build businesses? Uh, you know, my dad was in real estate. He had developed a couple of um, a couple of uh, buildings. You know, the reality is, I think I, my mom will tell will, will tell people that I always, you know, from from early on, was always trying to find an angle because there was always something I wanted, and in order to pay for it, I had to earn the money myself. So, um, uh, I, I think a lot a large part of the entrepreneurial nature came from wanting to have a video game or wanting to get a, a pair of shoes or something of the sort. Uh, and, you know, you, you can't really work in many places till you're 13. So what do you do? You, you find ways to make money before that uh, and through various tasks uh, around either helping around the neighborhood or in certain cases, selling things. Um, and so I always did those things uh, or found whatever angle I could um, some of which were completely awesome and above board, and uh, sometimes a little less so. Um, probably, probably my favorite, which is—it's funny when you look back, and I, I don't know if, if you have kids. I have three, three kids, and 
if I heard that one of them was doing this, I think I would be both proud and uh, shocked. But, you know, my, my friend's dad owned an arcade. It, you know, I'm assuming most people still know what arcades are when you go and you put the coins in, yeah. uh, the tokens in uh, to play video games. And the arcade went out of business. Yeah. And they had you know, tens of thousands of tokens that they had from the machines and the games. And my friend and I, at age 11, realized that you could use those tokens in the arcade that was still around in our neighborhood. And so at first we went and we just started playing video games until our eyes kind of burnt. Um, <laughs> and yeah, um, back, it was like Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know if you remember. I think it was called yeah. or King's Lair, um, those sorts of games. And we then realized that it would be more uh, advantageous to us to sell the tokens. So we would stand outside the arcade and sell tokens instead of four for a dollar, six or eight for a dollar. And it was great. I mean, it funded most everything we wanted to do for a very long time until one day, as we were sitting outside the the arcade, we felt hands on our shoulders <laughs> and you know they brought us to the back and I don't even know if what they did was legal or not, but they basically confiscated our money and threatened to call the police on us. And as 11 year olds, you know, we just kind of ran out and that was the end of that. My, my, I guess my first true entrepreneurial venture. Wow. Well, definitely an alternative to selling lemonade. So, uh, so good stuff. So I guess in yeah. your case, obviously you went to, to Stanford and, and, you know, obviously international relations and international policy. I mean, what, what got you into all this international stuff? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, you know, when I graduated high school, I graduated in 90, 1991, you know, from, I think from 88 to 91 was really when there was all the talk about how Japan was going to dominate the world and how their infrastructure and their systems and their manufacturing were so much better than the U, the United States and other, uh, other economies. And so it, it was just all around me, this sort of learn about other, um, other, other sort of countries and the way they do things. Um, and that manifested itself in just a great interest overall in foreign affairs. And I think even in high school, I wrote for of our little foreign affairs um, magazine that we had. And so I just became generally really interested in it. And once I was at Stanford, that enabled me to meet so many interesting people who had a really broad range and diverse range of experiences from you know, people who had come from overseas who wanted to study in the undergraduate to, and I did my master's in international policy, you know, I was sitting there talking about, you know, what was going on in Bosnia, but I was in class with someone who had served in the military in Bosnia. And so I was naturally, you know, less, uh, less impactful in class as he was, but I got a great education out of, you know, learning what happens in the world and how things, um, you know, are interrelated, which is, I think, been a, a driver of my decision making since then that's amazing and obviously that that got you into disney which was your first job so what did you get out of disney what was the biggest lessons yeah so it's funny actually i was my whole goal was to join the state department actually until i talked to someone from two years you know, who had graduated a couple years before me and i i think was in the state department in some terrible country essentially managing people who stamped passports and I realized that maybe I didn't actually understand the career path 
too well uh, of having a master's in, in international policy. And so I, I basically went to uh, talk to a couple of friends uh, and I went to the career fair and I learned about Disney, which at the time you know, had just gone through this amazing turnaround, uh, thanks to Michael Eisner, and had created all of these really wonderfully structured programs for people graduating from uh, university. And uh, so, and I, and it, it's a, to be honest, it's a wonderfully easy sell, I think, in a lot of ways, or at least it was back then, because you have these, this great brand, you have all these wonderful assets. Uh, and, you know, when, even today, when you say to people that you work at Disney, I bet, you know, people just have a fond memory of it. And that was a really big driver of my, why I thought it would be a great place to start a career is there's a lot of EQ value in just saying you get to, you, know, you get to work along this, uh, at this company alongside all these wonderful things. And, and back, back then, at least, it was where, you know, a lot of extraordinarily talented people were being incubated uh, career-wise because of the infrastructure they had set up. Obviously, during this time, you know, eventually you got a call from a friend of yours and yep. you went to, to pay this friend a visit and that changed everything. Yeah, so I had a great first year at Disney learning, getting a great education. Um, but I went to visit a friend of mine back up near Stanford and he was at a startup and it was pretty clear that being in this in amazingly engaging environment of 40 some odd people was a great way to get more responsibility and just have a lot more control over uh, your Im impact that you could have. And so that company was called Classifieds 2000. This is 2006. Uh, and I joined in a business development role. And I think maybe four months later, um, no, no thanks to anything I had actually done, um, but that, uh, you know, they, they were acquired by a, a company called Excite, uh, which was at the time, uh, a large search engine and a public, uh, a, a strong public company. Um, Very cool. And obviously, your segue into your actual first baby. So tell us about Billpoint. So my, you know, we're, we're at Excite, and one of my colleagues and close friends at the time approached me and said he and his wife were starting a business, uh, and that I want to come along. And that company. Uh, became Billpoint, which was sort of early on in the payments industry. Uh, and you, we raised money from Sequoia. Uh, and then, you know, not too long after that company was acquired by eBay, which was a thrill uh, but, and a great lesson in, you know, what you can do to build a company, uh, build some momentum around it and exit. I think what we learned was, you know, there are times when you want to sell and times you want to hold because that was so early in the evolution of how the world was going to change. And I think had we sort of held on, it would have been uh, an even, even greater outcome. You should never feel bad when you make, make money, but it was, um, I think, a very fast pathway from idea, product, execution, momentum to exit. Um, yeah. But in reality, you know, I, I think you know, patience would have been a real virtue for us back then. Yeah, because, I mean, we're talking here about uh, an acquisition that was north of 150 million and literally took from founding the company to, to acquisition. I mean, we're talking about literally a year. Is that right? Yeah, basically. Well, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, how, how yeah. come in such a short period of time? How is that possible? <laughs> uh, you know, it's really fascinating to think from a product standpoint how much faster you could do it today. 
you know, back then there was no base of technology uh, that, that people were building off of. Um, I think the reality is, you know, one, there was a period of time when everybody was excited about everything, uh, <clears throat> number one. But two, what we were doing got a lot of traction very quickly, and it was super strategic to eBay at, at the time. And so there was a lot of reasons why right idea, right time, right place. Um, and, you know, to eBay's credit, they you know, they were very thoughtful and quick uh, to, to pull the trigger on things that they believe strategic. That's amazing. And obviously after you did the vesting and resting, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And then one page came knocking. So what about one page? Yeah, so the same sort of founding group uh, left. We, we started a business that it was it's funny when you think about how technology evolves over the years, but essentially what it did would serve zero purpose today uh, in the sense that it helped extract information from databases and make it more easy to manipulate. Um, and it was a, another great lesson in the sense that we had a wonderful tool that became a wonderful product, but it was not necessarily easy to turn that into a big company um, because the, it, to sell tools at that time in particular in the software space was very regimented. I don't, I mean, this is for, for people who go way back, you would go to Gartner conferences, you would set up booths, you would hire an enterprise sales team. Uh, there was, it wasn't as much today where, you know, people are more sophisticated about how to think through it and software. Uh, and so Ultimately, the pathway of doing all that became complicated, and we set up a number of OEM relationships uh, where we were uh, we had established reseller partners. And when it became clear that the company would only be so big, uh, we ended up uh, putting the company up for sale and were acquired by one of our OEM partners. So then, after this, it took like about two years uh, to really go at it again. I mean, it was two years filled with poker with traveling i mean what did you decide it was the right time to to take some time off <laughs> what pushed what pushed you through that a uh, part of it was that you know back then this was 2001 you know two and the dot-com bubble had burst it was a real you know the last year had been rough in terms of selling software and trying to figure out the strategy around the company uh, and so when when the company sold you know, there was, we didn't just stick around. There was, it wasn't a big enough opportunity to do that. And I moved back down to LA partially just to, because I thought maybe there would be something more fun there. Uh, and, you know, once I got to LA, realized that there was a lot of the world that I still hadn't seen. And I just began to travel and I had met my now wife. Uh, and so we went just to a lot of wonderful places. And along the same time, because I had free time, as you said, I started playing a lot of online poker first. And then real poker, and I, I did really, really well uh, <clears throat> for about a year and a half. And then, if you remember, the sort of poker began to get televised, <laughs> and all of these young people started playing, and they could play a lot more than I could, who, and even though I wasn't even doing much. Uh, and uh, eventually, I, I, most of the money I won, I lost pretty quickly. <laughs> and that's when I decided it was time to time to see see about doing something again with my life. <laughs> yeah, and that was a time where you bought a website. So tell us about that moment when you bought the website, which eventually became Break Media. Yeah, so you know, it's I had basically uh, you know not been paying that much attention 
frankly, for the, for about a year, a year and a half. And I, uh, you know, I went online to go see a video I had missed or a moment in, in pop culture media. It was actually the Janet Jackson nipple slip at the Super Bowl for those who remember. <laughs> and yes. I had I hadn't, I hadn't watched it. I had been in the bathroom or something. And it was amazingly easy to me how uh, how it was how easy it was to find and how great the streaming quality was. The last time I had really focused on watching a video had been two years before. And, you know, the video players popped up and it was slow and it was really clunky. And here I, you know, not only did I watch that video, I watched, you know, 10 other funny clips or uh, interesting things that had happened. Um, And I started thinking about how that would change the way people consume media, found a website that I just really ended up liking to go to and bought it uh, along with a friend and that sort of became the genesis for for break media you know looking back obviously starting youtube would have been a good idea (laughs) with the the same insight um we had a a good outcome but um you know wasn't a a deep deeply experienced product person i guess um and so we built that company uh, into a a sort of an entertainment brand that provided sort of video um, you know at some points financial information uh, you know, some, some things related to MMA, uh, and then a bunch of other entertainment related news and information, um, you know, over the course of the next six years. So then whatever happened with the company? Uh, in 2013, we merged that business into a company called Alloy Digital. Uh, Alloy um, at the time had, was a sort of public company that had just gone private. Um, and, was investing into the digital ecosystem quite heavily. Um, and, you know, we became sort of one of the leading players in the online video space um, and, you know, had a lot of success, you know, until the world of media became quite challenging uh, as Google and Facebook and uh, sort of the big platforms continue to take more of the ad dollars uh, out of the market. Um, you know, but along the way, Actually, I should mention I, I had sort of joined a couple of boards and had sort of been relying a lot on my love for international to learn about what was going on in the rest of the world and sort of had, had started spending more time thinking about what I could do that was combined with an interest to, to see more of the world and maybe start something new. And obviously, you've you've joined great boards too of great companies. So, so I guess you know, especially for the folks that are listening as they're thinking about putting together their board, you know, uh, and they're, they're, they're obviously their board of directors. What do you think makes a board of directors be effective? Uh, you know, it's a really great question. And I, I guess it kind of depends on the scale and the stage of the company. Um, and and I, I've been really fortunate, I think, in the bigger companies I've served on the boards of to have had a couple of very seasoned board members, um, who I won't mention by name necessarily, but they were what they did for companies when they were going well was provide a sort of guiding light and be a sounding board. And when things became more challenged, I think what they did was really help the company focus and narrow and make sure that the sort of the board was paying attention to the things that would truly drive value um, and help sort of see beyond the chaos. 
so when I reflect on as, you know, particularly now with Boosted, as we're, as we're thinking what this company looks like or with Boy, uh, you know, what we've tried to do is come up with board members who are supportive, but not overly supportive. You need to be challenged and you want people to come at you with hard questions and and really, you know, make sure that what is the true north of the company is the one that should be the true north of the company. Uh, and you want people uh, who have a diverse range of experiences because everyone who comes from your background and your point of view will likely be less able to provide those challenges. Um, but it's, you know, fortunately, you know, some of the board members I've interacted with have just been uh, phenomenal um, and have really, I think, helped shape some of the directions of the companies in a positive way. That's amazing. And obviously part of your next uh, phase in your in your career, I mean, it was around investing as well and, and incubating ideas. I wonder, like, what do you think makes an idea great? I mean, what, what really makes an idea go from an idea to something magical? What is, what is that transition that needs to happen? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think a lot of times it's just force of will, right? I mean, you talk to a lot of people uh, right. and... You know, there, it's it's easy to have a great idea, and you know, the, the, what's that famous saying? Like, ideas are easy, execution is everything. We, uh, that's that's very true. But I think the interim step there is taking the idea from I have an idea to where do I even start, and that is really. And there's a lot of talk about Silicon Valley and what happens with people leaving, and it's all probably warranted in reality. But what the what Silicon Valley really does enable, though, is an ecosystem that teaches you that. And now there's other places which, which do as well, um, I'm sure. And certainly Los Angeles is one, and I spend a lot of time in Stockholm, and that's one. But the ability to say, I've got a really good idea. What, what are the questions I need to ask myself? What are the questions I need to ask of others? And, and subsequently, who are the partners I need to find to take that idea into a reality? And I, you know, most people lose, actually not in the execution, the biggest uh, sort of filter actually happens in my experience in that first sort of uh, step where you, you, you know a market, you know and have conviction on a space because you're, you have experience, but you don't, like you, you don't, literally don't know where to go. You don't know where to go for engineering help. You don't know where to go for funding. Um, and that's why these ecosystems that they get created have done a, a great job of fueling more and more innovation. Very cool. Yeah. Very and cool. In my, sorry, in my experience, but, you know, just as it parlays into that was, you know, when, when it come to when it came to, you know, Boosted, which is our current company, you know, I, I had a thought and I believed strongly in sort of the thesis I had, but but my background was not in retail or selling products in any way, uh, in a meaningful way at least. Uh, but I was fortunate enough because of the network in Los Angeles to have met a guy uh, named Charlie who had just you know, run a $500 million retail chain that he founded called Charming Charlie's. And it was because of my ability to form a connection with Charlie, talk through this overall thesis with him, get his ideas and background and how to improve it, make it, make it better, um, that we were able to both have the confidence together to say, this is, this is a great idea that we have strong conviction and now let's take it to the next level. Got it. I mean, obviously now you are uh, involved with two companies. So that is Boy in, in Sweden and then also Boosted Commerce. Uh, so so why don't we just talk about this and maybe we start with Voy and then we go into Boosted. Um, but but Voy, so how, how did Voy come about? 
So I, again, I live in Los Angeles um, and I had come out of my home one day and I live right next to UCLA. And if anyone is familiar with living near a a big college campus, there's amazing, uh, amazing qualities about it. But one, uh, one problem of it is that it's hard to get through, you know, through a campus. (laughs) Most of the roads are closed. Uh, And I had dropped one of my children off at soccer at the intramural fields. And usually that meant sort of taking a 15 minute car ride just around UCLA if you wanted to go get a cup of coffee or just sit down somewhere. Um, and then I saw the scooter. And I, you know, all credit to Bert, I said, this is going to revolutionize how one gets around my neighborhood. Uh, it was my first thought. And I took it and I loved it. My second thought was this is something that would be really amazing to have in Stockholm where I had you know, been spending, spending a bunch of time. And I called up a friend of mine uh, and you know, someone who, who runs one of the companies uh, I'm involved with. And I said, you know, who, who else is thinking about this? Who's, who, who else has kind of seen this? And they introduced me to the CEO, the, the gentleman who's on the CEO of, of Roy Frederick, uh, who two days later was on a plane <laughs> to see me. Uh, and he flew out to LA and we, he spent the whole weekend kind of looking at the ecosystem. And, you know, I basically sent him back and I said, look, we should go do this. Um, you know, I, I, it's a European company. You're amazing. I could tell already after two days, uh, you, you should go run this thing and I'm going to help you uh, raise some money and, <clears throat> and be involved as I can. Uh, and, you know, you know, what ended up happening was as I had more free time and, you know, he built this out, it became very clear that, you know, one, he was a special individual uh, and had the ability to do things that you know, not a lot of other entrepreneurs can, and that the market was even bigger than we both had thought, <clears throat> uh, which led to just me getting more involved on a day-to-day basis uh, than I ever had expected to, um, <clears throat> but really driven by the fact that you know, he had created a, a culture and a brand that were so fun and special to be around, much like you know, I remember at Disney just feeling great you know, being associated with something, um, which, which, you know, is a, is a great motivator for anybody in a company, including, uh, and investors, including myself at that time. Absolutely. Because how much a uh, capital has now boy raised today that is uh, publicly available or disclosed? Uh, I actually don't know offhand, but we've certainly raised over 125 million. Yeah, um, I think I see and, here on Crunchbase, it says 197 million, but I don't know yeah. if that's accurate. That sounds it could very well be accurate. You know, it's a, it was a capital intensive business, um, yeah. you know, but, but it's also one of those businesses that is now incredibly well positioned because of COVID, you know, there's winners and losers thanks to COVID. Um, yeah. but you know, it's, it just had an unbelievable six months, you know, profit, EBITDA profitable for most of the time, um, you know, the, with technology adapting so that scooter lifetime has been, increasingly increasingly growing and so not only do they last longer they're more efficient during the day they're more environmentally friendly uh, yeah. and um and now there's an emerging resale market so i think voy is well positioned for success and you know, it's really thanks to sort of the team that frederick put together um, and you know frankly finding early fundraisers who believed in it knowing it would be a capital intensive business um and still wanting to put money in to be along for the ride um, which yeah. which uh, we were lucky to find early on. Amazing. So then let's talk about boosted commerce, mm. which is obviously your mm. other baby. You know, like the one that obviously you're dedicating probably the most amount of time now to. So so tell us about boosted. So so boosted is 
uh, you know, the, an aggregator of e-commerce businesses. Um, you know, primarily our you know time is spent right now looking at Amazon third-party sellers, um, but you know we're also looking at the ecosystem in, in general, including companies that sell on Shopify or other platforms. Uh, <laughs> but essentially, the aha moment was as I was going back and forth to you know came when I was going back and forth to to Europe. Uh, I kept getting sick, and I started taking a bunch of immunity supplements. Uh, and you know, because they're ingestibles, I got interested in what I was taking, and uh, began calling. Uh, you know, looking at what I was buying from Amazon, and I quickly recognized that I, you know, these were brands I'd never heard of. And I reached out to one of the vendors I had been buying from, and was surprised to find out it wasn't this sort of big nutrition company, but it was a I think 24, 25 year old uh, kid from Iowa who had created this brand, understood that you could create third party businesses on Amazon, and not only built it to something I think like 7 million in revenue, but 2 million in profit, but had just sold it. And the uh, that was pretty eye opening to me. And so as I dug more and I talked to a lot more sellers, that was when I called Charlie, um, we realized that there was this uh, unbelievable opportunity. Uh, to basically have the whole world be your product development group. And, you know, the hardest part of starting anything is product market fit. And Amazon and the tools and the ecosystem around it have evolved such that suddenly anybody can be a, an R&D person and they can do research as to what their problems are, what's the need in the marketplace. Some are big, some are niche. Um, and they can do the really hard work of creating the prototype selling it, developing an audience, making sure people like it. And we knew that with our backgrounds, we could take those, you know, those products that they were selling and make them better. We could either source them cheaper, potentially. We can improve the marketing. Um, we could kind of knowledge arbitrage. Uh, and you know, the idea behind Boosted was really to identify those products, find brands and products that are proven product market fit that people love. Uh, and buy them and sort of apply a bigger infrastructure uh, to grow the businesses around them. So then, so then, for example, for the people that are listening here, what ended up being the business model of Boosted? So we literally, yeah, we, we um, you know, very practically, we are going out and acquiring, we've now acquired, I think, seven businesses. Uh, you know, they're all cash flow producing businesses. Uh, our goal is to you know, grow the profit of those businesses. Um, we sell on Amazon. Uh, our products are sold on Amazon. We have some products that are sold on Shopify, but we're basically an e-commerce company that you know currently sells everything. From uh, we sell thank you cards, we sell uh, skincare products, we sell some supplements. Um, you know, by the time this this podcast is, is live, we will be selling uh, you know non-slip tape, uh, bath mats, uh, you know some some other products in the home goods space that we can't talk about necessarily. Um, but it's all things that are top sellers in their respective categories on Amazon. Most are things that we think you know, have a brand that can carry far beyond Amazon um, if and when we choose to invest in that. Um, but what we're really doing is you know, building an infrastructure to be able to quickly identify, acquire, uh, and scale businesses um, within our um, within the e-commerce ecosystem, and apparently for a business like this, you don't really have to raise a whole lot of money. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 
you know, when you're buying, it's funny because in most of the, it's almost the exact opposite of Voy, which is super capital intensive <laughs> uh, upfront. Here, we're putting out money for the businesses, but the businesses are actually cash flowing. And so, you know, raising money becomes, you know, something that you have to be, and you have the ability to be pretty strategic about. Um, and, you know, we, we've, I think, been fortunate enough to find people that want to invest with us uh, who bring a lot of knowledge and, uh, you know, brain power to what we call the boosted brain. And so we, we closed around not too long ago where we brought in Torch Capital, um, where John has been a really uh, leading investor in a lot of e-commerce and D2C companies. We brought in a company here called uh, Crosscut Ventures in LA, which has seen a tremendous amount of success you know, helping companies think through how to scale. Uh, and then we brought in, frankly, a lot of people we know from the LA and other ecosystems who just have ability thinking through how to scale and finance businesses. Because unlike a lot of the other things that you know, we've done, you know, we have clear visibility into, in you know, multiple hundred million of revenue because we're buying it. And uh, we know we have the infrastructure to be able to, to enhance it uh, very quickly, the stuff that we are buying. So it's an exciting time uh, because we think we're, you know, we're, we're getting in early on these next generation of consumer staples and brands. Got it. So, so I guess imagine if you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world five years later, I mean, tremendous news, in a world where the vision of Boosted is fully realized. What does that world look like? It's a great question. Um, I, I think in a perfect world, uh, what, what would make us most happy and what we do think about as our guiding light is that we will have you know, brands that people like, uh, uh, love to some extent, uh, when possible, and that have super high NPS value, and that we are generally recognized as the company that is, you know, the best operator of at scale, Amazon-related, uh, Shopify-related, and other sort of long-tail brand-related businesses, um, and that all comes with really being marketplace experts and also being brand-building experts. You know, we have the skill sets to do. So, so one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, I mean, obviously in this case, I mean, your, your career, your entrepreneurial journey is, is remarkable. You've done so many things. You've seen so many things, also invested in different companies. So if you had the possibility to go back in time and, and have a chat with your younger self, perhaps that younger Keith that was willing to listen, and maybe that younger Keith that was thinking about starting a first company coming out of, you know, after the acquisition of Excite, perhaps. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself knowing what you know now and why before launching a company? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, my answer is going to be, I think, a little cliche in the sense that I think uh, the best advice I, I could have gotten back then is just be, be more patient. Um, you know, building businesses, when you read in the news, everything seems like it happens overnight. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, you quickly realize that true value is built over a period of time and long-term, and there's going to be a lot of bumps in the road. And the reality is those bumps, you know, are incredibly intimidating when you're in the moment. And you know, I remember the first company, one of the reasons, you know, we were excited to sell to eBay was, you know, we were running into a lot of those bumps at the moment, uh, at that exact moment. Um, the reality is patience 
uh, a solid group of people around you, and that can include investors, can be really wonderful in terms of leading to the ability to see that, see through that, and uh, ha- create vast opportunities for for yourself and um, the company. Very profound. So, for the folks that are listening, Keith, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, you can, uh, I'm, I'm actually super easy to reach. Um, just Keith at BoostedCommerce.com. Uh, is uh, feel free to shoot me an email. Amazing. Well, Keith, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.